Well, hey, Harvest, thank you for worshiping with us. I hope you're ready to uh, dive into God's word. Um, we are actually starting a new series um, this week. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're gonna be in the book of Philippians going verse by verse, really through the rest of the summer. So why would we pick Philippians? Well, the, the title of the series is this, it's Joy for Today. And uh, as I've watched 2020 unfold, I think it's fairly obvious. And I think we would all agree that our world could use some joy. But even beyond that, beyond our world needing it, as I've looked at my own life and kind of the swing of emotions that I've had over the first six months of this year, this is a, a message that my heart needs to hear. So I would think for all of us, all of us would be for more joy. So we're gonna be going through the book of Philippians this summer, but before we jump to Philippians, I'd ask you to grab your Bibles, if you have one handy, and turn to the book of Acts. I'm actually going to um, pick up our study this morning in Acts 15, just so you have some background to the book of Philippians. And in Acts 15, you come to a critical moment in the life of the church. And what's happening in Acts 15 is the church is getting together. It's called the Jerusalem Council, and they have to make a decision on what Christianity is going to look like moving forward. And the issue of the day is diversity. Originally, um, Christianity and Jesus's message was directed towards uh, God's people, the Jews, but now it is spread to the Gentiles, and there is confusion on whether when a Gentile is saved, does he have to pick up all of the entrappings of Judaism, or is there going to be diversity in the way Jews and Gentiles worship Jesus Christ? So that's the issue on the table as we go to Acts 15 and the church meets on this issue and they come out of this meeting and it tells us in Acts 15, 28, it says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, speaking of the Gentiles, no greater burden than these requirements. So the decision of the council in Acts 15 is we're going to celebrate the diversity between the Jews and the Gentiles and there are going to be different expressions of faith as both Jews and Gentiles choose to be followers of Jesus Christ. And this is really good news to the Gentiles. So Paul decides he's going to take a second missionary journey and he's gonna go back through the churches and tell them the decision of the Jerusalem council. And while he's on his way, revisiting the churches, he is traveling with Silas and along the way he picks up Luke and he picks up Timothy. So this is really kind of a rock star group of missionaries on this second missionary journey. Paul has a vision and that vision is of a man from Greece. He's from Macedonia. And in that vision, the man says, come here and help us. And Paul takes that as a word from the Lord and he basically reprograms his GPS. He changes his plans on where he's going to visit. And he jumps over the Aegean Sea and he goes into Europe. And that's significant because this is the first time the gospel has really left Asia and Asia Minor. The gospel has been primarily preached in the Middle East, but because of this vision and where we find ourselves in Philippians, the gospel jumps over into Europe, into the Roman Empire proper. And Paul's first stop where he spends any time is in the city of Philippi. So it's interesting when he gets to Philippi, it's been Paul's custom as he goes into the different cities where he's planted churches, he begins his ministry by preaching in the synagogue and arguing that Jesus is the Messiah to whatever Jewish congregation exists in that city. But jumping over the Aegean Sea, ending up in Europe, when he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue, which means there were less than 
10 devout um, Jewish men in that city. So Paul, it says, he goes outside the walls of the city. He's looking for a group of worshipers and he stumbles across this group praying by the river. And what makes this group unique is it's a group of women. And there he meets a woman by the name of Lydia. She is living in Philippi. She's living in Europe, but she's actually Asian. She's from a city called Thyatira. And she is a uh, fashion designer per se. She is a, the text says, a seller of purple goods. And she is very wealthy. And, and she is devout. She doesn't understand everything about God, but she is a believer in the one true God. And she is studying the Old Testament She is seeking. And Paul approaches her and the text says it this way. It says in verse 14 of Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was was said by Paul. So in Philippi, we have the first convert. It is a rich woman who is Asian living in a European city. Go down two verses and you meet your second character in the church of Philippi. This is a woman, she is a slave and she is demon possessed. And as Paul begins to meet with this group of women that were praying, she, this demon possessed girl continues to follow Paul around just to aggravate him. And it's interesting what this demon possessed woman keeps saying. The demon keeps crying out from inside of her of Paul and his Companion, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So even the demons recognize that Paul is speaking of the most true God and providing these people with the way of salvation. Well, the text is is really straightforward. It says that Paul was greatly annoyed by this demon-possessed girl, and after many days, he cast the demon out of her. Well, this created an uproar in the city. Her owners were earning a huge profit off of this demon-possessed girl's ability to fortune tell. And now Paul had disrupted their income stream by relieving this girl of her demon oppression. So they take Paul, they take him, it says, into the marketplace, and they bring him before the city leaders, the magistrates, and they basically said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city, and all of a sudden there's a mob. You can read about it in Acts 16. A mob forms, and they looking for what to do with these men. In verse 23 of Acts 16 says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So they took them to the leaders of the city, and the leaders of the city said, we're gonna strip them naked. We're going to beat them with rods. And after they had beaten these men severely, They put them into jail and told the jailer to keep them safe. Well, verse 24 is interesting. Of the jailer, it says, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, that brings up a visual picture for us kind of of 100, 200 years ago that if somebody was in stocks or chains, they were had a a bracelet of, of steel around their ankle connected to a chain or to a ball and they were fastened in that way. But Um, commentaries and theologians say it was way different back in the first century. These stocks that are being referred to in Acts 16 were actually an instrument of torture. It would twist the prisoner's body and contort it in ways that his entire body would cramp. So the the reason I tell you that is simply to communicate this. The, The leaders of the city had already beaten Paul. They had given him into the custody of the jailer 
to keep him safe for his safety, but the jailer took it upon himself to inflict torture, to be cruel to his prisoners. So that's where we find ourselves. Paul is in prison, and the text goes on and says this, that it says um, around midnight, verse 25 of Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. So, so just, I got to point something out here that to me is obvious in the text. Paul, if, if you're another prisoner in the prison, Paul's a pretty annoying guy because it's midnight and, and he's suffering and these prisoners are used to being tortured and treated cruelly. But Paul, in the midst of this, he starts a, a hymn sing. He begins to sing and to praise God because Paul's an unusual dude in the fact that his spirit is unbreakable. You tell Paul, I'm going to kill you. He says, to die is gain. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you live. Well, to live is Christ. Well, I'm going to beat you or I'm going to torture you. And he says, listen, I don't believe that the sufferings of this present time are worthy to be compared to the future glory that's going to be revealed to me. Paul has a spirit that is unbreakable. And as the story goes on, as you read through Acts 16, the next thing that we see is that there is an earthquake that hits the city of Philippi. And I would just argue that this is a pretty um, specific earthquake in that it opens the doors in the jail and loosens the chains of the prisoners. So this isn't just boom, earthquake, pile of rubble. God is doing a work to free Paul. And the Philippian jailer in losing his prisoners is going to face a death sentence himself. So he gets ready to, ready to kill himself. But Paul says, we're all here. We're safe. We haven't left. We haven't abandoned you. And the Philippian jailer is now converted. It says he is converted and his household. And now you have a church in the city of Philippi. It is made up of a rich, Asian, fashionable woman. It is made up of a slave girl who has been freed from demonic possession. And it is attended by a Philippian jailer who has a background of cruelty. A very, very diverse church, a, a very, very rough church from its beginnings. But it's interesting as we get into the book of Philippians, what you're going to see is this is a church that Paul absolutely loved. This is a church that he loves. The occasion for the writing of the book of Philippians is Paul is writing a letter of thankfulness, of gratitude, because the church in Philippi has collected an offering for Paul to help meet his needs while he is imprisoned in Rome. Several years have passed. Paul is writing this letter back to the church in Philippi as a prisoner in Rome. He is a prisoner for preaching the gospel. He is awaiting trial and then execution. And Paul is writing back, thanking the Philippians for their generosity and kindness towards him. And then the contents of the letter of um, Philippians is unusual. It is like any other letter that we can read that Paul has written in the New Testament. These prison epistles, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, what he wrote to the Corinthians church, they have a completely different feel, a completely different vibe than the book of Philippians. To the Galatians, he's having to deal with an issue. He's having to give instructions, solve a problem. The Galatians are forcing the Gentiles to look like the Jewish followers. They are squashing the diversity 
that was allowed in the church. And he's saying like, why are you doing this? And he's so frustrated with the Galatians. He's, he'll write in one point, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, what has bewitched you? So it is a corrective letter. It is, it is difficult, it's harsh. Colossians, Paul's having to deal with a whole nother issue with the church in Colossae. The issue there is false teaching. It's Gnosticism. The fact that uh, Paul has to argue the fact that Jesus actually came in flesh, that he died, literally died. And so he's dealing with false doctrine. In Ephesians, he's having to instruct that church, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they're struggling, falling back into old patterns of sin. He's like, no, 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 no. This isn't the way that you're supposed to live. And to the Corinthian church, like that, that thing is a train wreck of problems. And Paul is just instructing, instructing, instructing. But as we open the book of Philippians, it's all good news. It wasn't written to deal with a problem. It wasn't written to fix something that was broken. Paul is thankful for this church that was basically the first foothold in Europe for the gospel and the way that they have maintained their faith. So as we go through Philippians, many of the verses in this book are going to feel familiar to you. There are a lot of what I would call coffee cup verses or verses that fit really well on the back of a coffee cup. It says right in chapter one, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter three, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verses in chapter four, verses six and seven, very familiar to a lot of us. It says, don't be anxious for anything, but with everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Now, now that's a little long for a coffee cup, but you get what I'm saying. And then you read this verse in chapter four, verse 13, I can do all things through him that strengthens me. So that's a little bit of background so that you know where we're going in this book. The theme is joy. And we're gonna spend this summer um, mining in the verses in the book of Philippians, how we in our lives today, 2000 years later, can experience the same joy that Paul has experienced. The big idea this morning is simply this, real joy is rooted in a proper understanding of who we are. So with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and jump into the text. We'll work our way through Philippians. Let's start in chapter one, verse one. Seems like a good place to start. Here's verse one, it says this. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, stop. Okay, that, that, that's a lot to take in. I've, I've already given you the first seven verses, so I think we need to pause, take a breath, not go through this too fast, right? And um, I do that for a purpose, because even in the introduction of the book of Philippians, in these first seven verses is something, or in these first seven words of the first verse is something we cannot miss if we're going to understand the message of the entire book. The, the first thing that Paul does is he introduces himself. Some years have passed. He doesn't know all the believers in the church. And Paul chooses to introduce himself with this simple phrase, servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant there is the Greek word. That word is doulos. And it describes somebody who is subservient and dependent on someone else. It is willing, determined, and devoted service. Paul writes this, there is no negative 
connotation in his voice. When he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, he's not complaining about the fact that he is a servant. Some translations say bond slave. Your translation might just say slave. But Paul is saying, this is who I am. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. That's how he wants to be identified. That's, that's what he wants his audience to understand. That is how he views himself. And I would argue as we get into this study in the book of Philippians, that Paul's introduction, that he is a servant of Jesus Christ is the foundation. It is the headwaters per se of all the joy that he wants to, us to experience as followers of Jesus Christ. If we miss the introduction, I'm not sure we're gonna get the rest of the book right. And as I was thinking about this and how Paul chose to introduce himself, what I began to wonder was, man, he could have introduced himself in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different ways that Paul could have um, introduced himself or, or, or started this letter to the church in Philippi. And it's interesting to me to look at what he left out. So Paul doesn't begin the letter by talking about his accomplishment. The first thing that we see Paul leaves out, if you're keeping notes, is this, he leaves out his accomplishments. He doesn't say, hey, Paul and Timothy, church planters. Paul and Ch Timothy, the founder of your church. Paul's identity is not rooted in his accomplishments. And it's interesting, if you go a little bit further in the book of Philippians, Paul does, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, he's going to unpack his entire resume. Flip over for a minute to chapter three, look at verse four. And in chapter three of Philippians, verse four, it says this, if anyone thinks, Paul speaking of himself, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day um, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, has to the law of Pharisees, has to zeal a, pers a persecutor of the church and has to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul lays out his resume in chapter three, but he doesn't begin the letter that way. He starts the letter by simply saying, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And in chapter three, when he lays out his entire resume, he says, listen, I am well-educated. I am a member of the elite class of Jews. I am a Roman citizen. And as it relates to righteousness, I am blameless. He gives his resume, but I want you to see why. Look at the next verse. It says this, verse seven of chapter three, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, he drops his resume in chapter three with all of its accomplishments to discredit his accomplishments and say that they are worthless compared to the fact that he is a servant of Christ, that he knows Jesus. And, and I would just tell you, there, there are many in this room, I've struggled with this, that if I am not careful, if I'm not diligent, my view of myself is framed by my accomplishments. And when your identity is built on your accomplishments, it is always at risk. If, if, if you're known because you are, are strong or you have good looks, what happens as you age? If you're a businessman, what happens when the markets tank? when your business struggle, what happens to your identity if you are um, in a relationship and that relationship sours, how does that impact your identity? If you're a parent, if you built your identity on, on your kids and, and, and what a great parent you are, what happens when your kids all of a sudden fall into rebellion, they become little terrorists? Well, well now what happens 
to your identity. See, when our identity is based off our accomplishment, it's always at risk. And I learned this the hard way. I spent a good portion of my life, more than 10 years, chasing real estate deals. First, it was trying to get the deal done and to get that first deal done. But after that deal got done, then find the next deal and a bigger deal and the next deal and and, and bigger deals and more deals and more risk. And and by God's grace, he got a hold of my life. He's like, is is, is this what you're chasing? And I began to ask, is, is like this all there is? Is my identity really gonna be tied in this? Just deal after deal, like there's got to be more. Paul's learned this, but your accomplishments are a sneaky idol. It's interesting when we introduce ourselves to someone else and we're getting to meet someone for the first time, it's like, hi, my name's David. And if there's a break in the conversation, I might go right to, so what do you do? And, and, and I'm immediately looking for him to tell me what he does professionally or what his accomplishments have been. And, and when somebody meets me, if they say, well, what do you do? I say, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but the reality is in this season, I'm a pastor of a church that hasn't gathered for worship in more than four months. So you just need to understand, even in my pastor's hearts, I've had to check my spirit against this. Like when we regather, what's that gonna look like? And is it gonna be the same? And are, are, is everybody coming back? And, and, and this thing that I've, given my life to for the last 10 years, like, and I'm telling you, man, it's a sneaky idol. You've got to be careful that you don't base your view of yourself off what you've accomplished. Paul's identity is secure. His joy is secure because it's rooted not in what he has accomplished, but because of what Jesus has accomplished on his behalf. So the first thing we see is he doesn't talk about his accomplishments. Here's the second one. Paul doesn't bring up his heritage. It's interesting, Paul's a Roman citizen. That, that gives him certain rights, certain standing, certain privileges. And, and if you were to go back and look at Acts 16, when, when Paul is dragged into the marketplace by the mob and put before the city officials, he never mentions the fact that he is a Roman citizen. It's not until after he's released from prison, he goes over to Philippi's house, or to, to the Philippi, Philippian jailer's house, spends the night there. It says the next day, the leaders come to him and tell him to leave. And he goes, you're not just gonna throw me out of the city. I'm a Roman citizen. You arrested me publicly and now you want me to leave quietly? And all of a sudden the, the officials are really scared. And, and the question as I read Acts 16 is, why didn't he mention the fact that he was a Roman citizen when he was arrested? It would have saved him a lot of pain. And, and the text doesn't tell us, but, but could it be that Paul knew when he was arrested that if he would have made his citizenship the issue, if he would have said, I was a Roman citizen there, it would have spared him suffering. But could it be that the anger of the mob and the leaders would have now been diverted and placed off some others in the church, some of his followers who didn't share his position of privilege? Is it possible that Paul did this to protect some of his less fortunate members of the church in this new group in Philippi? As I say that, I would just say this, our world's changed a little bit since the last time that I had the opportunity to preach. That was three weeks ago. Think of how much the world has changed in three weeks. And you're seeing it on TV. And I would just say that people are, um, they're angry and uh, they're frustrated and there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of um, sorrow and there's a lot of 
pain. And, and it doesn't take a lot of turning on the TV or just looking out into our own streets or talking to other people that you come into contact with. There is something that is radically broken, not just in our country, but around the world. And it is over this issue of, of racism, of discrimination, of prejudice. And I would just say this, I don't think as a culture, I think this is pretty clear, that we are not great at celebrating diversity. It's interesting, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the book of Revelation. And John is the writer of the book of Revelation. And he is, it tells us at the beginning of chapter four, he is taken up into the heavenlies. John has a view of what heaven is going to look like. And twice, he does it in chapter five, and then again in chapter seven of Revelation, he describes the people that he sees in heaven. He says in Revelation 5, 9, he's talking about Jesus, the Lamb of God, that he is worthy to open the scrolls. And we see this written in verse 9 of chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We see him say the same thing in chapter 7. He's looking at a um, gathering of those who've come out of the tribulation. And he describes this multitude. I believe it's the church. And he says this, he says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And the point that I would make is when John is describing multitudes in heavens, he focuses on the diversity of the multitude. He never says, well, there were some people. There was a group of people. But what we see and what I believe to be true is diversity is celebrated throughout eternity. In heaven, diversity is not eliminated. It is celebrated. And as a nation, we're struggling to figure out how to get there. The solution is not that everyone becomes the same. The cure for gender discrimination is equality, not sameness. The cure for racial discrimination is equality. It's not sameness. And, and while we can't be sure of what Paul's motive was for not mentioning earlier that he was a Roman citizen, what we can say with confidence is that Jesus left his place of privilege to take the brunt of the effects of our sin in our place. We read in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. This is a command for us, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Oh, oh by the way, that word servant there in Philippians 2 is the word doulos. Same word as Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy. Doulos, a servant of Jesus Christ. Christ was willing to become a servant intentionally being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul will tell the Ephesian church that because Christ was willing to step down from a place of privilege to bear our sin, he will say in Ephesians 2 verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Ephesians Three, or in Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul is dealing with the issue of Gentiles and Jews and how they're going to get along. He's dealing with discrimination. 
He says, those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. This thing that our world is longing for, this peace that is broken in our world, this discrimination, this getting us to the point where we can celebrate diversity, it's only gonna be accomplished when we face the difficult reality that it is sinful not to celebrate diversity and work to bring about equality for all people. And hear me when I say this because there's good news in it. The problem of racism in our country, it's not a white problem. It's not a black problem. It is a sin problem. It is in all of our hearts. And racial reconciliation is not something that we will simply enjoy one day in heaven. What Ephesians is clearly telling us is the hostility has been broken down now. As a church, I just believe because we have been entrusted with the gospel that we have to lead in this. And I would say to our church, this is a season where we have to make sure that we are being very careful, not just to listen, but to learn and then to lead. We need to lead in this area. We need to check our own hearts. We need to think through our relationships because the world is never going to heal from the issues of inequality and prejudice until the gospel takes hold of people's hearts. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is the resolve. Ephesians 2.16 says it this way, that the cross reconciles us, killing the hostility. So the first two things he doesn't um, references um, accomplishments. He doesn't reference his heritage. Let me give you three more just quickly. His authority. The Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Paul, an apostle. He's always dropping his credentials because he's got to drop hammer and correct things in the church. But with the, with the Philippians, he just wants to talk about joy. And the best way that Paul can talk about joy is to get his credentials his, and his accomplishments and his authority out of the way. He just says, listen, I'm Paul. Take the focus off me. I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ. Let's get him in focus. The fourth thing is he doesn't focus on his situation. As Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians, he's in jail. And I'm just telling you, if I were writing the letter, I'd be talking about the fact that I was a prisoner of Rome. That's not what he does. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can allow ourselves to become so consumed by our current trials that our identity is stolen by our current circumstances. If I'm struggling with school, I'm stupid. If I'm unemployed, if I, if I lose my job, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm, I'm non-essential. If I'm whatever it may be, Paul doesn't allow his circumstances to steal his identity. And then just a fifth thing really quick, Paul doesn't let his, or his failures steal his identity. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says very simply, he goes, I am the foremost of sinners. So when Paul looks back over his life, he says, I don't know what you've done. I don't know who you are, but, but I was a persecutor of the church. I was putting Christians to death. So whatever you did in your life, whatever your track record of sin is, you need to understand your junior varsity. I'm the equivalent of Michael Jordan when it comes to sinners. I'm the lead. 
And, and it would be easy for him to be overwhelmed with his past failures. It would prevent his ability to continue to promote and spread the gospel. It would be easy for me as your pastor to be so overwhelmed by my shortcomings, my mistakes, my past sin, and my failure that I would be overwhelmed to the point that it would steal my identity. And yet Paul doesn't see himself through the lens of his mistakes. He's just simply a servant. And, and I can't help but think of what Paul said even as he wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, to us, you're not, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, so, so how in the world does viewing yourself as a slave or as a servant raise your self-image? And what Paul understands is this. His image is not based off what he believes that, it's, that he's worth, his self-worth. His image is based off his master's willingness to purchase him and what he was willing to pay. So the wonderful thing about Paul's introduction, I am Paul, my identity is I am a servant of Jesus Christ, is his identity is not in jeopardy because it is based off the price that his master was willing to pay, his own life, his own blood. And that becomes the immovable foundation to Paul's joy. It's not his accomplishments, it's not his heritage, it's not his authority, it's not his current situation, and it's not his failures. Paul's joy is rooted in a proper understanding of who he is. Okay, so just as I close, just, just really quickly, so, so how do we get there? So, so we can talk about Paul's identity and how he saw himself, but, but how do we develop this perspective and how do we get to experience the joy that Paul did that was independent of his circumstances, the, the joy that Paul wants us as followers of Jesus Christ, what he wanted the church in Philippi and the followers there to experience. Well, good news. We're gonna spend the entire summer looking at the keys of finding joy as a follower of Jesus Christ. But let me just give you two examples. I don't wanna leave you with no application as we end this message. Verse three, Paul says this, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. So the first thing I would say is thankful remembrance. That should probably be two points. It should probably be thankful and then he is remembering, but quite honestly, it's possible for me to remember without being thankful. It would be easy for Paul to look back on his time in Philippi and what is on his mind is the beatings and the mobs and the being stripped naked publicly and the torture. But, but he's making a, a choice in his mind that when he thinks back of his time in Philippi, he is focusing on the good that God accomplished, even if it meant trials for him. So he says, I'm going to be thankful in my remembrance of you and put my focus and my attention on what God has accomplished in that season. Are, are, are you good at that? Is that something that I normally do? Would I be viewed as a thankful person? I don't know that's the first word that comes to mind when people think of David Wissen. I think intense or maybe a lot of other words. I don't know. But here's what I know. We want to be thankful people who focus and remember the good that God has accomplished in our lives. And then the second thing I would say this, look at verse six. It says this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. I put one word on that. He has thankful remembrance and he has hope. Paul has a hope that in spite of his current circumstance, he believes that God is in control. He believes that 
God is accomplishing his purposes. And my favorite two words in verse six are, are these two, in you. That he who began a good work in you, that makes it personal. It means that I can have hope that I can change, that people can change. I might not be who I was and I'm no longer just gonna be who I am, but I can believe that God can actually change, change and transform me. Gotta have hope, we've gotta have thankful remembrance. It says in Lamentations 3 verse 21, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning great is your faithfulness. So I, I hope that over the course of the summer that you join us on this journey, looking for the joy that Paul wants us to have and Jesus wants us to have in our Savior, Jesus Christ in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, this book. I thank you for uh, this book in this season. And um, I would um, pray that you would remind our hearts that um, the answers that the world is so desperately looking for the, the, the turmoil that has just engulfed our country. There's a resolve. And that resolve is not a political resolve. It's not a policy resolve. It is the resolve of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the work that he's done on our behalf in the cross. Let that be the thing that changes our hearts, that we spread through our communities because it is a truth that endures. It's in your great name we pray, amen.